Hi, I'm Debbie Georges. Welcome to America Can We Talk for today. Today we're going to talk about religious freedom rallies in America tomorrow, freedom in California versus Texas. Chuck DeVore of the Texas Public Policy Foundation is joining us and the latest on the citizen question on the census. Huge developments. Stay tuned. And finally, of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Talk to you in a moment. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome back again to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Well, tomorrow, Wednesday, July 10th, there'll be religious freedom rallies all around the country, and I wanna tell you what they're about and why it matters so much. These are religious freedom rallies to call attention to the persecution of Christians around the world. And the problem of persecution of Christians around the world is something maybe not a lot of Americans understand yet, but I think we will. The more we pay attention, the more we uh, learn about it, it is just truly egregious and outrageous. The numbers, just for one example, this, these are numbers actually from the Open Doors organization. 345 Christians are killed around the world every month because of their religion. 105 churches and Christian buildings are burned or attacked every month in this world. 219 Christians are detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned. And again, all of that is every month around the world. And so these rallies tomorrow, sponsored by Save the Persecuted Christians, are designed to have a, a message from America, a message of we're watching, we don't want this to, to, we need this to stop, this cannot go on. And I know some of you might be thinking, well, okay, so suppose I went to a rally in whatever city I live in, what difference is that going to make? How is that going to change what happens in Nigeria or in countries around the world? And I'll tell you the answer why. First, I wanna ask you how often you and others have asked the question, why, when Nazi Germany was, was growing, when the Nazi forces were growing in their evil in Germany and people could see that Jews were being rounded up and put, on, uh, you know, put into camps or put onto trains and sent away, never seen again, so many people around the world have said, why didn't we know? Why wasn't there more of a protest within Germany? Well, the answer is because people were scared. They were scared and they didn't want to be the ones to call attention to it. But we don't have that excuse in America. The Christian persecution, while it does happen in America, the violent, deadly, brutal, ongoing persecution of Christians around the world is something we can protest, we can call attention to. And the value of doing that is this. If we have rallies in America and around the world, large numbers of people showing up and, and denouncing it, demanding that it will end, we get more attention from the members of the U.S. Congress, more attention from the, uh, the Trump White House, more attention from the powers that be in our country who could possibly do something about it, put pressure on countries where this is happening. In addition, rallies around this country put more pressure on the regimes that are allowing it to happen and not doing enough to stop it. You get potential attention from the United Nations. You get potential attention even from the governments where this is occurring. And to be really clear where and why this is occurring, most of this Christian persecution, and I'm not talking about not letting them build a new church in a particular town. We're talking about brutal murder, 
burning of churches, kidnapping of young girls, horrific conduct happening around this world. It is by in large majority, in large part, it is happening at the hands of Islamic terrorists. That is who is doing this, Islamic terrorists. In addition, this is happening in communist countries where the totalitarian government simply cannot abide the idea that people in their country might be more interested in uh, following the teachings of God and the, the teachings of their faith than doing what the communists tell them to do. So communist totalitarian governments are a big problem. China is a huge problem in this particular regard, but really most of it's happening at the hand of Islamic extremists around the world. And America being a Judeo-Christian nation in its founding, uh, if we can't stand up and take a stand and speak up and show up and and let the world know we know what's happening and we're, it, we're going to do what we can to stop it, who else will? And when else is there to do it? But now there are many organizations trying to call attention to this. Open Doors USA, we've had their guy on the show before, uh, and also Save the Persecuted Christians, who is sponsoring these rallies tomorrow. And if you go to the website, religiousfreedomrally.org, it's religiousfreedomrally.org, you'll find the names of 15 cities across the country uh, where these rallies are taking place, and you can rally and show up. And secondly, you can, if you can't go, you can participate in the rally online. You have an, There's an online ability to participate in these rallies. And so I, I just can't urge you strongly enough, you know, you know about it now, you can go to, the, again, the website, religiousfreedomrally.org, find out uh, there are 15 cities where this is happening. Atlanta, Cleveland, Columbus, Dallas, Denver, Houston, Los Angeles, Miami, New York, Phoenix, San Francisco, Tampa, Tysons, outside of Washington, Tysons, Virginia, Washington, D.C., and West Palm Beach. All those communities are holding these rallies tomorrow. The more people show up, which is simple signs, end persecution of Christians, the more we can do as a nation to say that we are going to do what we can to stop this horrific violence, this persecution of Christians around the world. And that, my friends, is today's First Five. I want to turn and talk to you now. We have a guest joining us online. We have Chuck DeVore, and I'm going to tell you just a little bit about him. Uh, he's been on the show before. Chuck DeVore is currently, he's with the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is uh, an extraordinary state-based think tank here in Texas. It is a leader among state-based think tanks in inspiring legislatures and individual citizens to embrace and support conservative solutions to the problems that we face as, as states and countries. He is our vice president of National Initiative. He works on criminal justice reform and frequently writes about the economy and how energy tax and regulatory policies influence general prosperity. Uh, as a background, he was in the Reagan, he was a Reagan White House appointee in the Pentagon from 1986 to 1988. Uh, he served as a staff on the staff of a U.S. congressman. Uh, he was a city commissioner. Uh, he, he's just held all sorts of positions. He's been a state, I don't even see it in the little bio here, but I believe he was a state legislator um, in California. But the reason I wanted to have him come on is this. He, he's a great guy, first of all, just a fount of knowledge. But he's been doing a lot of writing about contrasting the outcome, the impact of economic policies, comparing Texas, where we strive to support free markets, limited government, limited regulation, and the impact on the economy and jobs and on people in Texas, contrasting Texas with California, which has beautiful beaches and lovely weather, but a, an enormous uh, big government mentality pervades California. And so Chuck's been writing about this in various places. And I want to ask, 
all of us to be talking about the idea that the policies our lawmakers embrace, whether it's Texas and conservatism or California, practically socialism, uh, what that means for the average Joe, the average person, what the impact is on those policies uh, that the legislature embraces. So without further ado, and I hope we have him online. Hi, Chuck. Hello. How are you, Debbie? I'm very well. It's nice to see you. Great to be back. So I want to just I'm going to plant one seed and then get get into these articles you've written recently. You're you're getting people's uh, feathers ruffled. You're kind of pointing out some of the weaknesses in California's policies. But I want to start with the idea and just kind of go back to it periodically. A lot of people vote for big government programs, big government policies because they think it makes them they think they're kinder, that they're better, that somehow the way to make life better for people is to make government bigger. And this is what allures people a lot to voting for big for people who stand up for big government, who fight for big government policies. So and, and frankly, especially women seem to suffer from this, that, you know, I can't solve everything, but I can vote for big government and government will solve everything. So I want to talk about what's really happening on the ground in California. Uh, first of all, just to start with, you wrote a piece. Uh, this was in Forbes last month. Uh, workers moving from San Francisco to Austin would get an immediate 46 percent raise due to less regulation. OK, how can that be? Tell us about that. Uh -huh. Well, this is about the cost of living in major metropolitan areas. And what you find all over the country is that while there is some of the cost of living differential due to location, in the case of San Francisco, I mean, it is in California, it's in the Bay Area. Uh, however, anyone who's been to San Francisco knows, as Mark Twain once said, uh, the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. So it's not exactly uh, known for its good weather like uh, Southern California, where I was from. But the fact is that because of uh, burdensome zoning regulations, environmental regulations, high taxes, the inability to, to build uh, new projects in San Francisco and the surrounding communities, what you find is that rent uh, is two, three, four times higher. And so if you're uh, someone working in the high tech industry and you move from uh, the burgeoning, uh, you know, from the established high tech industry in Silicon Valley to the burgeoning industry in, in the Austin area, you could have the same paycheck, the exact same pay level, and your effective standard of living will be almost 50% higher. That, that is truly astonishing. And I do know that about California. I know that in um, uh, everything costs more in San Francisco to start with. It's, and, and then on top of that, the restrictions on building, I, I was particularly aware of. So you just drive up the cost of everything that involves, you're living your life, renting your place, finding a place to live. It, it's all driven up by, and, and that's such an interesting parallel. So uh, I'd love to have you just share more about this, about this idea why it costs so much more to live in San Francisco than in the great state of Texas. Are there other examples? Well, if you look all across, uh, if you look all across California, it's not just San Francisco. It's Los Angeles. It's uh, San Diego, and even some of the smaller, more rural communities. All of them suffer from, uh, to one degree or another, overregulation, restrictive zoning, uh, environmental laws, uh, greenhouse gas uh, restrictions, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, higher labor costs due to California's pro labor union uh, rules. And all of this conspires to make it very, very difficult to build uh, new single family homes, new apartments, uh, new retail establishments, new office complexes, new manufacturing. Uh, and as a result now, uh, you're seeing uh, California consistently being shown by the US Census Bureau 
to have the nation's highest mental poverty rate. Uh, a lot of your uh, listeners probably don't know that the official poverty rate that's been around for 55 years uses the same poverty threshold for 48 states, for the contiguous 48 states. They have special thresholds for Alaska and for Hawaii. But uh, what census does is they say, well, um, the poverty measure, the, the, the level over which you, you are earning money that brings you out of poverty is the same in Manhattan as it is in Lubbock, Texas. Right now, that's wow. patently ridiculous, right? <laughs> yeah. And so uh, that official measure had been criticized for many, many years by people in Congress and by advocates for the poor. And so it took 20 years, but the U.S. Census Bureau, in concert with other federal agencies and academics, worked for 20 years to create the supplemental poverty measure, which was rolled out in 2009. And ever since that measure was rolled out and published 10 years ago, California has had the nation's highest supplemental poverty measure. And the most recent uh, uh, two or three year average period, I think they like to average three year periods. So the most recent period for which data is available, it was released last September, shows that California's poverty measure is once again the highest in the country. And proportionately, as I recall, is 29% higher than is Texas. Uh, Texas's poverty measure is within the margin of error of the survey. So, so that to me is a very basic measure of how is a state doing, how is the state's policies performing for the most vulnerable residents of the state? And here you have California prides itself for its left of center policies, I'd argue progressive policies. They have the highest individual income tax rate in the country, marginal top tax bracket of 13.3%. Uh, they bring in a lot of money. Their, their government um, spends about 50% more than does Texas. Uh, so it, it's a big government state with a lot of regulations. Uh, right. And yet, in spite of all of that, they have the highest poverty rate in the country. I'm going to ask you, you just mentioned a moment ago that California spends about 50% more uh, than Texas. What is the relative, you're talking about absolute dollars? Um, that's a great question. I, as I recall, we're looking at per capita. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so I, I'm sure I should know, but which state has a bigger population, California or Texas? California is about 60% larger uh, than is uh, Texas. The two states together, one in five Americans call home. Wow. Uh, and one very interesting thing, Debbie, is that there are only four minority-majority states in the country. These are states that that uh, look like demographers tell us America will look like in the future. Uh, and the two states that look most like America's future are Texas and California. The other two states that are majority minority are Hawaii and New Mexico. Wow, okay. Well, I wanna go back to this idea because in California, I have to tell you that I think that people are drawn to the idea that California is at least trying to help the poor. They're trying to do things so they have all sorts of government programs in place and they're trying to protect the environment, but they are spending a fortune. They're spending 50% more than Texas uh, per capita. So it's a, a fair comparison, even though California is bigger. So they're spending more per capita. And at the end of the day, they still have the highest poverty rate in the country. That is just, right. can you put those two facts together, explain how that could be? <laughs> well, I, I, think it, I think it comes down to the, the greatest 
determiner of poverty in America is whether or not you have a job. And in the jobs front, Texas has just been crushing California for quite a long time. Uh, it's true that after the Great Recession, which California suffered disproportionately more than the rest of the country, Texas, by comparison, had a very shallow uh, recession compared to California and the rest of the country. And so when the recovery finally began to get traction, California did recover more rapidly and was producing more jobs for a while than was Texas. But uh, that is now calmed down. And what you see is that uh, Texas, uh, as a percentage of private sector jobs, uh, continues to grow much more strongly than does California. And because the cost of living is so much lower here, when you do get a job, you're more able to support your family in Texas than in California. And so even the working poor are much more likely to be poor in California than they are in Texas. Now, one last thing about this supplemental measure that some of your, your uh, listeners may not appreciate is that not only does it take into account the cost of living, at least insofar as housing costs, it also takes into account non-cash benefits that are not counted under the old, uh, the old official poverty measures. So for example, uh, your Section 8 housing vouchers, the value of those housing vouchers aren't counted toward the poverty limit under the official poverty measure, but they are counted under the supplemental. The same with food stamps, now known as SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program out-of-pocket medical expenses, uh, job-related childcare, transportation expenses. All of these things are accounted for in the supplemental measure. So it's a far more comprehensive and accurate measure of poverty that we're talking about here. And again, uh, California's poverty measure, and, and remember, this is with a state that demography, de from a demographical standpoint, is very much like Texas. Uh, both states have about the same percentage of Hispanics. Uh, Texas has much closer to the national average of African-Americans. Texas is about 12.5% African-American versus roughly 13.5% uh, nationally. California is about 6.5%. Uh, Asians, California is about 14.5%. Texas is about 4.5%. So when you look at all the, the data, you see that these two states are, are uh, very diverse. Uh, and yet, and yet, Texas's supplemental poverty uh, measure is within the margin of error of the national average. I am so grateful for people like you that will actually dive into data, process it, be able to make actual relevant comparisons, and be able to describe them in a way that, that you can follow. I really, really appreciate that skill uh, and talent and your willingness to, to work so hard on it. Because I, you know, I think as, as Americans look at you know, moving forward in this country and how we're gonna, you know, we have a huge argument. I know that TPPF is a nonpartisan group. We're not talking politics, but we have a big election coming up next year where a lot of the argument is, uh, that there is a huge problem with poverty in America. Um, on the left, there's an argument there's a poverty problem, and the way to solve it is, of course, to have bigger government. That is usually the answer uh, of the more left-wing mindset, the big government mindset. And I'm grateful that you're pointing out, essentially, exactly the opposite is true, at, at least if you compare California versus Texas. I want to shift now to this. Uh, the next thing about the tax rates in these states. You wrote a piece also. Low-tax states are adding jobs at double the pace of high-tax states since the Trump tax cut. So you're talking about very recent, since the Trump tax cut went into yep. place, low right. tax states are adding jobs that double the pace of high tax states. Would you explain why that would be, what the thinking is behind all that? Yeah, this is a fascinating uh, 
case, it's, it's almost like an economic experiment unfolding before our eyes. Um, when I was in, Cal in the legislature, I was the vice chairman of the Revenue and Taxation Committee in the state assembly. And as a result, all of the tax bills uh, came through the committee. Uh, and of course, I voted no a lot on that committee, uh, usually to no avail. Uh, and so one of the things that was very fascinating to me was that one of the more controversial aspects of the big Trump tax cut and reform uh, signed into law by the president in December of 2017 uh, was this limitation of the state and local tax deduction to $10,000 per filing household. Uh, now, the SALT deduction, the state and local tax deduction, the, known by the acronym SALT, the SALT deduction was essentially a, uh, a subsidy for high tax states and localities. Because what happened was, if you are one of the Americans who itemized their, their individual income tax return, and roughly 30 to 40% of Americans do, depending on which state you're, you're from. Uh, so if you're one of those 30 or 40% that itemizes, uh, what would happen is you got to deduct the full amount of your state and local taxes off of your taxable income. And so whatever tax bracket you were in, essentially, roughly speaking, about a third of the state and local taxes that you were paying were then picked up by the federal government, by taxpayers in other states. So if you were in high tax yep. New York or high tax New Jersey or high tax California, and you paid $20,000 in state and local taxes, basically roughly 6,500 bucks, $7,000, depending on your tax bracket, you got back, right? You paid that much less in federal taxes. And so now we're limiting that to $10,000 per filer. And so that has the effect, Debbie, of changing the tax code in all 50 states simultaneously. That has the, the same practical economic effect of doing that. And so I hypothesized when this came out, I thought, you know, I'm gonna start looking at the state level numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and look at state level private sector job growth and see whether or not there starts to be a divergence between the growth rate in states that have low taxes below that $10,000 threshold and states that have high taxes above the $10,000 threshold. And sure enough, uh, you started to see a divergence very quickly. The, the, the data started to show up within three months of the change in the tax code. And what that tells me is people with money, small business people, investors, people who are making decisions whether to expand their family-owned factory in California or expand it in Illinois or expand it in Texas, they're making decisions that say, hey, you know, I can't deduct as much on my taxes for this wholly owned enterprise that, that we own in our family. I can't deduct it now in California. It's gonna cost me more money. So let's go to Texas. And so what we're seeing now is the rate of job growth in the 29 states that are low tax is double, double that of the job growth in the 21 high tax states since the change in the tax code in December of 2017. That's a great summary. And the basic point is tax policy does actually influence, impact the decisions employers make of where to open businesses. You do actually drive business away with a high tax state and you invite business with a low tax state, which then in turn gives jobs 
to people who need them, especially uh, people who are looking around for a job. They're, they're going to they're going to want to be in the states where the job creators are comfortable coming because they're not, their taxes aren't so high. It is so interesting the idea that it, it shouldn't be uh, such a revelation. But high taxes, people actually strive to avoid high taxes. They do. They they don't want to pay more taxes than they have to. They will make adjustments in their businesses and their personal lives uh, to avoid taxes. It is just uh, as uh, I guess that's about as surprising as you know it's hot in Texas in the summer or something. Um, you actually had another piece I wanted to mention briefly um, that you made a comparison of you had a piece called 75,000 jobs added in May since January uh, since January 2017 manufacturing jobs are up 3.9 percent four times the government rate. So essentially you're talking about and this was a piece just from um, I don't have the date right here but anyway yeah I guess it was from, I don't know when, when it was written, but in any case, very recent piece you wrote, arguing basically about the idea that manufacturing jobs are up four times the government rate. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so one of the things I was very interested in comparing was like periods of time under the last administration versus the current administration. And the reason why it's important to compare like periods is that the latter part of the Obama administration was during what many economists would call it the mature phase of a business cycle, right? All of the early rebound from the Great Recession was over with. Uh, the economy was basically growing at a relatively steady rate. And so comparing, for example, the same 24-month period, basically the last 24 months under Obama with the first 24 months under, under President Trump uh, and so on. Uh, because if you go back to the early days of the recovery, obviously there were huge gains in employment recovering from the Great Recession, albeit it was one of the most anemic recoveries ever yep. in modern US economic history. But that said, it was still a recovery. And so one of the things I found fascinating was looking at the number of manufacturing jobs added versus the number of government jobs added. And government jobs being defined as, as both federal, state, and local uh, government jobs. And what you saw under the last uh, couple of years under President Obama was government uh, jobs. And there's roughly, as I recall, about twice as many people working in government as working in manufacturing these days. So just looking at the, the raw number of jobs added, government jobs already kind of have an advantage because there's so many more of them, but roughly two to one. And what you saw is under the Obama administration, we were adding a lot more government jobs than we were adding manufacturing jobs. And I was wow. looking at this thinking, it's not good. I mean, how do we pay the taxes to pay for those government employees? And as soon as the president was elected, even before he was sworn in, as soon as he was elected, you see the rebound in uh, manufacturing jobs start immediately because people making hiring and, and investment decisions within manufacturing were anticipating that this president would reduce regulations and eventually reduce taxes. And they were right. So. So they made certain uh, investment decisions based on the expectation that this president was not what he said about red tape. And sure enough, you see manufacturing jobs take off. And at the same time, government job growth starts to slow down. And so now you're seeing more manufacturing jobs being added nationwide than government jobs. And I think that that's healthy. I think that's sustainable. 
Oh, I love the idea because every government job is obviously directly paid by the taxpayer. Every employee is directly paid by the taxpayer. It's not a private business adding a good or service, some benefit to society, uh, and then getting income for it, and then using that to compensate their employees. It's just government, it's just taxpayers writing their checks to the government that's turning around and paying those salaries. So I love that. Chuck DeVore, I just find what you do fascinating and just honestly so beneficial to America to really uh, get below the surface of all the kind of happy sounding political promises. Uh, we can make things free. We can provide things. Everything will be fine. Our economy will be booming. And to really dig into the numbers is just it's just so helpful. I appreciate your work. Also, I want to mention the website where your work it can be found and much, much more just wonderful work by the Texas Public Policy Foundation is texaspolicy.com. Actually, let me make sure of that, Chuck, texaspolicy.com, right? There you go. Okay. And um, I just appreciate your work so much. And you're making the, the logical laying out of data that help people see that what Texas, it's not just because Texas is the greatest state in the country, but it's also because the policies we embrace really do end up helping the little guy, helping the people who've got to find a job, keeping the cost of living down because of dropping or not having so much regulation, keeping taxes low. It is just a, it just a whole picture that is a picture of, um, um, you know, it's just opportunity and, and a picture of being able to create a good life under the kind of policies Texas has. So, Chuck DeVore, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Great to talk with you. Thanks so much. That, my friends, Chuck DeVore, Texas Public Policy Foundation. Great organization. I would turn now and talk about the um, ongoing discussion on the citizenship citizenship question on the census. And um, I hope this won't be a tongue tire for me. but. There have been amazing developments in the last few days. I just want to kind of lay out um, what has occurred. So President Trump wanted to add, or the administration wanted to add a question to the census, which is required by the U.S. Constitution to happen every 10 years. It must happen in 2020. The question that the Trump administration wanted to add relates to citizenship. Essentially, among the many other questions the census asks, it and it is, you know, are you a citizen? You know, if not, basically, what's your status? And because there are obviously legal statuses people hold that are not citizenship. They could be green card holders or something else. But trying to get to the notion on the census, asking the question, are you a citizen? So there were many left-wing organizations that spoke out against it, and the uh, census, the plan was moving forward. Uh, it is actually the Commerce Department that puts out the census with input from the Justice Department. So the case challenging whether or not the question could be added to the census got all the way to the Supreme Court. We already talked about this. June 27th, the Supreme Court, in a very surprising ruling from many people's viewpoint, ruled 5-4, Justice Roberts, going with the liberal side of the court and the four conservative justices we're fine with the question, but the 5-4 ruling said, it did not, to be clear, it did not say that citizenship can never be asked on the census. It did not say that. The Supreme Court said, actually, that the case had to be sent back down to a lower court. Essentially, they were trying to get to the question of what was the motivation for wanting the question on the census. And there were the argument of the plaintiffs, the people who brought the lawsuit, which are a handful of uh, Democrat-run states, ACLU, other immigrant, immigrant rights organizations, the, the kind of leftist mindset in this country brought the lawsuit saying that there should not be a question on the census about citizenship. 
So the Supreme Court ruled the case had to go back down to the lower court to try to, to work through how many, what, what the motivation was of the president and the administration wanting to put the, the um, question on the census. Well, to be really clear, and Justice Roberts is perfectly aware of this, there was not time between the June 27th ruling when the court, the Supreme Court said you got to go back down to the trial courts and the time that the Commerce Department had to get the census to the printer to get it started. The census has to be ready uh, by law by a certain time. So it was essentially, even though the decision never said you can't have the citizenship question on the census, the practical impact of Roberts siding with the liberals who don't want the question on the census was to make it almost impossible for the Trump administration to move forward with the census question. So that happened on June 27th. Then on July 2nd, a lawyer within the Department of Justice named Kate Bailey, trial attorney at the Department of Justice, sent out an um, email and then later there was a tweet confirming it, an email saying that the Trump administration had said, okay, we surrender, we can't find a way around this, we're gonna go ahead and send the census to the printer. She sends this out on um, July 2nd. There was, of course, um, you know, hooting and hollering and cheering by the left saying, oh yay, we kept the census question, the citizenship question off the census. Very next day, July 3rd, President Trump put out a tweet saying, this is Trump's tweet, July 3rd. The news reports about the Department of Commerce dropping its quest to put the citizenship question on the census is incorrect or, to state it differently, fake, in all caps. We are absolutely moving forward as we must because of the importance of the answer to this question. So Trump is telling DOJ, find a way, find a way to do this. We gotta get this question on the census. And the, uh, we have a statement, a kind of um, you know, non-specific statement, but there was a statement put out by uh, Attorney General Barr saying, we think we found a way to do it. We think we found a legal way. So they're still sorting it out. He did not describe in his statement what the legal way was to keep that question on the census. In the meantime, the Department of Justice announced that they are changing the lawyers within the Department of Justice who are going to be dealing with this census question litigation. So Barr is saying we're changing lawyers. He was required to make a filing with the court to announce they're changing lawyers just within the Department of Justice, changing lawyers on who's handling the government's arguments on the subject of this uh, census question. Barr says we're changing lawyers and he files the appropriate papers and the lawyers for the plaintiffs, the lawyers for the states challenging this census question and the ACLU and all the immigrant rights groups are fighting, they are opposing in court opposing the right of Attorney General Barr to designate which lawyers inside the Department of Justice ought to be handling this case. They are saying, these plaintiff's lawyers, the ACLU types are saying, the Attorney General doesn't get to decide who among his lawyers handles this case. We, the plaintiff's lawyers, we get to decide, we get to say, we like the old lawyers, we don't want the new lawyers. Well, I gotta tell you something, if you ever wanted a tip if you ever wanted a hint that this entire obnoxiousness uh, is, is, of, of the American left is in part tied to and relying on this, and people always say, oh, deep state, but the deep state lawyers inside the Department of Justice, the lawyers who are trying to push the Obama agenda, 
who are holdovers from the Obama administration trying to push the Obama agenda. So Barr finally realizes that the lawyers, Attorney General Barr finally realizes the lawyers in the Department of Justice who've been handling this, they're not really helping the cause. They're not really trying to move the ball forward and find a way to do this. So he wants to switch lawyers and people, I am surmising this reason. No one has told me this. I'm just making this as a as an educated guess. Barr figures out the lawyers inside the DOJ are not helping the cause of getting finding a legal way to get the question on the census. And the plaintiff's lawyers are thinking exactly the same thing. Hey, wait a minute. We had lawyers inside the DOJ who are on our side, who are just, you know, they're helping us along here. We don't want new lawyers who might bring new legal reasoning and fighting on this census question. And I'll tell you, folks, we, we've talked about this in this case before, and I just think it's important to, um, to understand the reasons behind what both sides are doing. One more thing I want to make clear, though, about the facts to keep straight on this, and that is I sent to my wonderful producer, Matt, um, a, a slide and a play, and just, yeah, there it is, right, right there. You keep hearing the leftists in this country saying, we haven't had a census question on the, uh, on the, we haven't had a citizenship question on the census since 1950. This is ridiculous. This is racist. This is wrong. And you hear other people saying, we've had this all along. Well, here is the uh, blocked out, laid out answer and maybe hard to read. So I'm just going to tell you the answer. The census has contained a question relating to citizenship for a hundred, you know, hundred years, eighteen through eighteen seventy through nineteen fifty, at least they had the question of your birthplace. They had starting in about eighteen. I guess it must be. I can't read this chart because it's a funny line, but somewhere between, I guess, eighteen um, eighty, they started asking, or a little after that, started asking about your citizenship. So the the line on the right, the column on the right is citizenship, column on the left is birthplace. Even into 1960, you're seeing different shades of green there. Into 1960, there were, uh, they had a random 25% of the uh, census form sent out, included the question of birthplace. Um, so, and, and they had, you know, throughout all those decades, leading up to the year 2000, some portion of people receiving the census in the mail got the question of birthplace and some portion got the question of citizenship. It came along in 2010 when President Obama did not like that question on the census. He took the whole question out. The point of all this is to say it is not an out of left field, bizarre topic. It's not something that the left ought to be saying, what in the world are we asking this for? It must be racist, must be horrible. I'm gonna tell you why that this matters so much and why President Trump is exactly right to push this. What happens based on census data? What happens on the measure of how many people live in various states, number one, impacts the number of seats in the U.S. Congress that are allotted to each state. So the percentage of illegal aliens living in your state are adding to your state's representation in Congress and therefore adding to your state's representation in the Electoral College. There's also a financial element to this, which is in Congress, when they pass laws and they are spending congressional money on all sorts of government assistance programs, 
they obviously rely on population data that a you know high state with a high population is going to get more money for government assistance programs than a state with lower population so congress would be able to if this census question were there are you a citizen would be able to figure out what portion of the number of people populating any particular state are illegal aliens now and, and, and may decide, you know what, we're going to cut back because, you know, just raw numbers. If your city has two million people, but a full one million of them are illegal aliens, we're not going to be sending you as much money because that's not really what our government assistance programs are designed to do. We're going to cut back and we're going to base our allotment to your city on the number of legal citizens. There are all sorts of ways the government can use this data to actually adjust the spending in our country to focus on spending tax dollars on, on legal citizens. Secondly, what the left is arguing is that they don't want this question on the census because after all, people might be frightened and not fill out the census. census. They might realize, hey, I don't want to have to admit that I'm a legal alien, so I don't want to answer this question, so I'm not doing the census. So you may have, it is, I, I would concede the point, you're going to have an undercount, an undercount in the census if the question is on there there will be people who won't answer because they are not legal they are not legal citizens they have no legal right to be here and you know what that is a cost we can bear we can put up with that reality because all of the benefits that flow to the states from an overcount seem to flow to the benefit of the leftists who want to have illegal aliens in, in America, don't want to have secure borders, support sanctuary cities, and are working toward having this illegal alien population make their way eventually to becoming citizens once the Democrats have the House, the Senate, and the U.S. Uh, and the U.S. White House. The Democrats benefit from the presence of illegal aliens here both immediately and long term because the plan the mindset of the american left is all these people who've entered america illegally and live here illegally keep them here long enough and we they the democrats will be able to have a firm solid democrat majority voting base in this country once they are able to make all those people citizens there is a sinister it is a very much a raw harsh political calculation by the American left. They don't want anything to interfere with people staying here illegally. They're happy to have them here illegally. It is the purpose of their policies to keep them here illegally and to make them comfortable. So this is going to become, back to the, where we are legally in the census question, this may become a little bit of a constitutional crisis. I'm getting ahead of where we are, but I will tell you that if the, the Commerce Department, the president, and, and oh, by the way, a majority of Americans, a significant majority of Americans, wants the citizenship question on the census. And the courts through Roberts, I don't even get off on Roberts' problems today, but Roberts having sent this back to lower court, if the left succeeds in keeping this question off of the census they are succeeding in perpetuating the overall mission they have to you know not secure the border never build a wall let people come in don't restrain them in any way don't don't even bother checking the refugee status or asylum status 
Let them be released into sanctuary cities and states. Keep them all here. This is a very, very strategic move by the American left. It's not happenstance. And the idea that we're going to be here in the year 2019, preparing for the 2020 census, and let the left bowl over the entire census process and say, we're just not going to let you know how many legal aliens are here. I think the left is worried the American people don't want to, the, the left does not want the, number, the American people to understand how many people are here in this country illegally because it will cause people to support firmer immigration policy, more secure borders, more deportations of people who have no right to be here. The poll, by the way, before we're going to do one last thing, folks are going to get to our why it matters to you. But here's the polling data in America. Pretty large poll was done. Um, and the, this is a Harvard, Caps, and Harris poll. So it's, it's a big poll. 67% overall of American voters want the census to ask what people living in the U.S., whether they are citizens, which includes, and you got to get this, so 67% overall, 88% of Republicans... 52% of Democrats, majority, slim majority of Democrats think the, poll, the census should ask about citizenship. And then, of course, 63% of independents. So that's where we are. America wants it. The administration wants it. The Commerce Department wants it. And I'm going to tell you, folks, I don't think that the Commerce Department and the Trump administration are going to take this sitting down, the idea that the courts are going to muddle up their effort to get this question on the census. I don't know what Attorney General Barr has in mind, but he is, he is on a mission to get that question on the census, and I think he's exactly right. And now I want to turn to the uh, ending of the show. I try to end the show every day talking about why the stories we talked about matter to you. So we started the show today talking about religious freedom rallies tomorrow. This is Echoes. You think about what happened in the 1930s in Nazi Germany. Why did no one speak up? The numbers are staggering and millions of people being killed, religious persecution in this world. We got to do better than Nazi Germany. Persecution of Christians internationally, Africa, EU, Middle East, China, is nearly all at the hands of Islamic terrorists and then some among committed by totalitarian communists. America should be the strongest advocate and loudest voice defending Christians. If not you, who? If not now, when? Large rallies, passionate pleas will be noticed by Congress, foreign governments, the UN, and even the perpetrators. We can make a difference. California versus Texas, love having Chuck DeVore on. The facts are not in dispute about whether freedom or big government works better. Texas, less regulation, lower taxes, enforces the law, results in greater job growth, better pay, less social dysfunction. In California, we didn't even get to a Chuck DeVore, by the way. He had a whole long piece talking about how California is having an outbreak of bubonic plague and typhus because of allowing homeless people to live on the streets and all the danger that spreads. California, more regulation, higher taxes, lawlessness, sanctuary state status, lower results in lower job growth, Effect, lower effective pay rates, higher homelessness, TB and typhus, high taxes on the rich do not make life better for anyone. On this census question, why it matters to you, this issue, folks, it just boils down to whether America still believes that citizenship matters. Get that point again. This question boils down to whether America still believes citizenship matters. It epitomizes the disconnect between the ruling class and the American people 
between the open borders, America is nothing special leftists, versus the border security matters because America matters patriots. There is nothing racist about asking about citizenship. Citizenship is colorblind. Opposition to the census question is about hiding from the American people the number of people living in our country illegally and facilitating having non-citizens count toward congressional representation and government benefits and having illegal aliens safely waiting in the wings as future citizens destined, Democrat Party hopes, to vote Democrat. And lastly on the census, Americans will look back someday at our era and ask, why could we not figure out that citizenship matters because America matters? We must see the leftist hysteria against the question as a flat out admission they have no regard for the concept of citizenship. The Supreme Court, especially Justice John Roberts, inexplicably and unnecessarily punted the issue back to the lower courts, seemingly trying to make it impossible to include in the 2020 census. This leftist manipulation of the issue should not be allowed to stand. Attorney General Barr appears set to provide constitutional adult supervision. And that, my friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thanks so very much for tuning in. Talk to you every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, on this show, America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America, because America does matter. America matters. Talk to you tomorrow. Talk. Truth about America. Can you hear-